Part Four, Chapter Six of O Pioneers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. O Pioneers by Willa Cather, Part Four, The White Mulberry Tree, Chapter Six. The church has always held that life is for the living. On Saturday, while half the village of Saint Agnes was mourning for Amadie and preparing the funeral black for his burial on Monday, the other half was busy with white dresses and white veils for the great confirmation service tomorrow, when the bishop was to confirm a class of one hundred boys and girls. Father Duchesne divided his time between the living and the dead. All day Saturday the church was a scene of bustling activity. A little hushed by the thought of Amadie, the choir were busy rehearsing a mass of Rossini, which they had studied and practised for this occasion. The women were trimming the altar. The boys and girls were bringing flowers. On Sunday morning, the bishop was to drive overland to Saint Agnes from Hanover, and Emil Bergson had been asked to take the place of one of Amadie's cousins in the cavalcade of forty French boys who were to ride across country to meet the bishop's carriage. At six o'clock on Sunday morning, the boys met at the church. As they stood holding their horses by the bridle, they talked in low tones of their dead comrade. They kept repeating that Amadie had always been a good boy. Glancing toward the red brick church which had played so large a part in Amadie's life, had been the scene of his most serious moments and of his happiest hours. He had played and wrestled and sung and courted under its shadow. Only three weeks ago he had proudly carried his baby there to be christened. They could not doubt that that invisible arm was still about Amadie, that through the church on earth he had passed to the church triumphant. The goal of the hopes and faith of so many hundred years. When the word was given to mount, the young men rode at a walk out of the village, but once out among the wheat fields in the morning sun, their horses and their own youth got the better of them. A wave of zeal and fiery enthusiasm swept over them. They longed for a Jerusalem to deliver. The thud of their galloping hoofs interrupted many a country breakfast and brought many a woman and child to the door of the farmhouses as they passed. Five miles east of Saint Agnes, they met the bishop in his open carriage, attended by two priests. Like one man, the boys swung off their hats in a broad salute and bowed their heads as the handsome old man lifted his two fingers in the episcopal blessing. The horsemen closed about the carriage like a guard. And whenever a restless horse broke from control and shot down the road ahead of the body, the bishop laughed and rubbed his plump hands together. What fine boys! he said to his priests. The church still has her cavalry. As the troop swept past the graveyard half a mile east of the town, the first frame church of the parish had stood there, old Pierre Seguin was already out with his pick and spade, digging Amadie's grave. He knelt and uncovered as the bishop passed. The boys, with one accord, looked away from old Pierre to the red church on the hill, with the gold cross flaming on its steeple. Mass was at eleven. While the church was filling, Emil Bergson waited outside, watching the wagons and buggies drive up the hill. After the bell began to ring, he saw Frank Shabata ride up on horseback and tie his horse to the hitch bar. 
Marie, then, was not coming. Emil turned and went into the church. Amédie's was the only empty pew, and he sat down in it. Some of Amédie's cousins were there, dressed in black and weeping. When all the pews were full, the old men and boys packed the open space at the back of the church, kneeling on the floor. There was scarcely a family in town that was not represented in the confirmation class, by a cousin at least. The new communicants, with their clear, reverent faces, were beautiful to look upon as they entered in a body and took the front benches reserved for them. Even before the mass began, the air was charged with feeling. The choir had never sung so well, and Raoul Marcel, in the Gloria, drew even the bishop's eyes to the organ-loft. For the offertory he sang Gounod's Ave Maria, always spoken of in St. Agnes as the Ave Maria. Emil began to torture himself with questions about Marie. Was she ill? Had she quarrelled with her husband? Was she too unhappy to find comfort even here? Had she, perhaps, thought that he would come to her? Was she waiting for him? Overtaxed by excitement and sorrow as he was, the rapture of the service took hold upon his body and mind. As he listened to Raoul, he seemed to emerge from the conflicting emotions which had been whirling him about and sucking him under. He felt as if a clear light broke upon his mind, and with it a conviction that good was, after all, stronger than evil, and that good was possible to men. He seemed to discover that there was a kind of rapture in which he could love forever without faltering and without sin. He looked across the heads of the people at Frank Shabata with calmness. That rapture was for those who could feel it. For people who could not, it was non-existent. He coveted nothing that was Frank Shabata's. The spirit he had met in music was his own. Frank Shabata had never found it, would never find it if he lived beside it a thousand years, would have destroyed it if he had found it, as Herod slew the innocents, as Rome slew the martyrs. Sancte Maria, wailed Raoul from the organ-loft, Ora pro nobis. And it did not occur to Emil that any one had ever reasoned thus before, that music had ever before given a man this equivocal revelation. The confirmation service followed the Mass. When it was over, the congregation thronged about the newly confirmed. The girls, and even the boys, were kissed and embraced and wept over. All the aunts and grandmothers wept with joy. The housewives had much ado to tear themselves away from the general rejoicing and hurry back to their kitchens. The country parishioners were staying in town for dinner, and nearly every house in St. Agnes entertained visitors that day. Father Duchesne, the bishop, and the visiting priests dined with Fabien Sauvage, the banker. Emil and Frank Shabata were both guests of old Moisset Marcel. After dinner, Frank and old Moisset returned to the rear room of the saloon to play California Jack and drink their cognac, and Emil went over to the bankers with Raoul, who had been asked to sing for the bishop. At three o'clock, Emil felt that he could stand it no longer. He slipped out under cover of the Holy City, followed by Malvina's wistful eye, and went to the stable for his mare. He was at that height of excitement from which everything is foreshortened, from which life seems short and simple. 
death very near, and the soul seems to soar like an eagle. As he rode past the graveyard he looked at the brown hole in the earth, where Amédée was to lie, and felt no horror. That, too, was beautiful, that simple doorway into forgetfulness. The heart, when it is too much alive, aches for that brown earth, and ecstasy has no fear of death. It is the old and the poor and the maimed who shrink from that brown hole. Its wooers are found among the young, the passionate, the gallant-hearted. It was not until he had passed the graveyard that Emil realized where he was going. It was the hour for saying good-bye. It might be the last time that he would see her alone, and to-day he could leave her without rancor, without bitterness. Everywhere the grain stood ripe, and the hot air was full of the smell of the ripe wheat, like the smell of bread baking in an oven. The breath of the wheat and the sweet clover passed him like pleasant things in a dream. He could feel nothing but the sense of diminishing distance. It seemed to him that his mare was flying, or running on wheels like a railway train. The sunlight, flashing on the window-glass of the big red barns, drove him wild with joy. He was like an arrow shot from the bow. His life poured itself out along the road before him as he rode to the Shabbata farm. When Emil alighted at the Shabbata's gate, his horse was in a lather. He tied her in the stable and hurried to the house. It was empty. She might be at Mrs. Hiller's or with Alexandra. But anything that reminded him of her would be enough—the orchard, the mulberry tree. When he reached the orchard, the sun was hanging low over the wheat-field. Long fingers of light reached through the apple-branches as through a net. The orchard was riddled and shot with gold. Light was the reality. The trees were merely interferences that reflected and refracted light. Emil went softly down between the cherry-trees toward the wheat-field. When he came to the corner, he stopped short, and put his hand over his mouth. Marie was lying on her side under the white mulberry-tree, her face half hidden in the grass, her eyes closed, her hands lying limply where they had happened to fall. She had lived a day of her new life of perfect love, and it had left her like this. Her breast rose and fell faintly, as if she were asleep. Emil threw himself down beside her and took her in his arms. The blood came back to her cheeks, her amber eyes opened slowly, and in them Emil saw his own face, and the orchard, and the sun. "'I was dreaming this,' she whispered, hiding her face against him. "'Don't take my dream away.' End of chapter 6 of part 4